Welcome to Pull Quotes. I'm Michal Stein. And I'm Lydia Abraha. Today on Pull Quotes, we're doing things a little bit differently. With the help of Hannah Ziegler, our colleague at the ROJ, we're going to explore the Jewish media landscape in Canada, why things are the way they are, and how things have changed over the last hundred years or so. We're not the first ones to look at this question. Canada Land did an episode in March of 2017 that looked at Jews in the media. That episode featured some people you'll hear from later. Alex Furman, who you might remember from earlier this season, also wrote a few pieces for Canada Land about issues in Canadian Jewish media. We'll link to all of those in the show notes. What's going on in the Jewish media landscape isn't so different than what's going on in a lot of local papers. Old funding models aren't necessarily working anymore, and people are going to lots of different places to get their information. What I wonder is, does this matter? What voices and stories are we missing out on? But before we get to all that, let's bring in Hannah Ziegler. So with me right now is Hannah Ziegler. Hannah, welcome to Pull Quotes. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Hannah, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? I am the senior online editor of the Ryerson Review of Journalism. And just like you, I am Jewish. So I have a pretty strong interest in Jewish media. Yeah, I think it's uh, important to talk about why in like the middle of January of 2019, we're talking about this question. And basically for me, this question started... Um, in October. So to give some context for my involvement in the Jewish community, um, I grew up going to Jewish day school and Jewish summer camp. And now I actually teach at a few uh, Hebrew schools in the city. And it's a lot of fun. And it has me thinking about Jewish identity and Jewish issues all the time. Um, I can't not think about it. It's literally my job. So in the fall, when there was the shooting at a synagogue in Pittsburgh, I had to think about how I was going to address it with my students. And I had to think about what it meant, what that event meant for me and what it meant for my community. And the Jewish community is small and it's really connected. And um, I'm connected to people in the United States and connected to communities across Canada. And I was kind of looking for something that was that was a place to talk about it. And um, in Canada, there's not a whole lot, and there there weren't a lot of places having this discussion um, in in a public discourse. And I was very I'm very lucky that I have these wonderful communities to go to. But at the same time, uh, I see a lot of value in public discourse and. Uh, I was wondering why we don't have a more robust Jewish media like they do in the United States. Um, I always looked at conversations happening in these American Jewish communities in papers like the Jewish Daily Forward. But even the Jewish Daily Forward folded their uh, print edition. They announced that they're folding their print edition just last week. And they're laying off a lot of staff. So that also signifies a shift in American Jewish media. And while... The Forward is keeping their online edition. They had been publishing in print in English and in Yiddish for 121 years. And that's quite remarkable. And I, I think it feels like a big loss. Um, so I'm interested in looking at 
what conversations are happening where and what conversations aren't happening and why that is and what that says about our communities and what that says about the state of media. So these are all kind of big questions, but we're going to try. The first question is pretty basic. Why isn't there more Jewish media in Canada? So we started calling around. My name is Ken Goldstein. I am a consultant in the economics of the mass media. I think it's essentially uh, demographics and economics. Basically, when the majority of the Jewish population came to Canada, or when their parents and grandparents came to Canada, I guess would be a better way of putting it. And the fact is, is that this is a population that for the most part uh, is fluent in one or both of the official languages, and the language around which much of the uh, press was built, Yiddish, is a language that isn't really used anymore. When Ken refers to the Yiddish press, he's talking about a tradition of Jewish press in Canada and the United States, as well as other diaspora countries from before World War II. But were these publications significant? My name is Rebecca Margolis, and I'm an associate professor in the very Jewish-Canadian studies program at University of Ottawa. They were extremely important. Um, it's actually hard to imagine the role that they played in a modern Yiddish culture, not just literary culture, but culture in general. So if you wanted to see what was new and exciting in the world of Yiddish culture, you opened your newspaper or you um, subscribed to a, a Yiddish journal of some sort, and they were divided along ideological lines. So if you were leftist affiliated, you probably had a certain newspaper or journal that you preferred, and you also read writers who shared that ideology. So the newspapers and journals allowed for sort of this virtual community of literary figures and readers that were um, international. Um, so it, it, we can't really overstate how important these publications were. Listening to Dr. Margolis talk about this great breadth of ideological diversity in the Yiddish literary community, I couldn't help but feel a little envious of those 1920s Jews. Because while there are still some Jewish media outlets in Canada, they're not exactly representative of the range of diversity, of identity, of opinion in the Jewish community. But that changed after the Holocaust. Really, the sort of the Second World War is the cutoff for everything that has to do with Yiddish culture, because you have this, this massive destruction of, of Yiddish civilization in Eastern Europe, and suddenly there's a, a huge reorientation to these new immigrant centers, and all of these longstanding institutions um, vanish or are replaced by sort of new models of culture. So, for example, in the United States, there were longstanding Yiddish language newspapers that had existed since the um, 1800s or, and 1900s. But really, after the Holocaust, um, there was such a huge reorientation of Jewish life that by that time, most of the community was English-speaking. And even the immigrants who came from Eastern Europe and, and tried to rebuild elements of Yiddish life became a smaller and smaller minority as their, their children became English speakers. Um, so that, that popular Yiddish culture lost its hold pretty much across the world, um, really around World War II, but we also start to see it a little bit earlier. So there's this cataclysmic event of the Holocaust. Um, and beyond that, what we start to see is that 
there are Yiddish books published that become more and more like monuments to a lost civilization. So the writers start fundraising to publish these books with their poetry and prose or collections of other writers, and they dedicate them to the six million who perished in the Holocaust. Um, and people start to treat these books as, as kind of um, symbols of this lost civilization instead of a vibrant living culture that used to exist in newspapers and journals and um, lectures and, and in this very, very sort of living, informal way. When Yiddish was no longer as widely spoken, publishing in Yiddish carried a lot more weight. Because it's, in a sense, a way of saying we are still here and Hitler did not destroy our culture. Mm-hmm. We, we continue to exist. It's no longer avant-garde youth culture. It is um, we survived and we will continue, our language and culture will continue to survive. And every time a book appears, it becomes um, a celebration of that, in a mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. And it's no longer this, this place to experiment that it was previously. And that's a huge change. And the journals were places where you could do that, because you could, you could get a group of colleagues together and say, okay, we're going to put out a journal, and everybody would submit their most radical, exciting poem, and it would be published fairly cheaply and distributed, and then everyone would respond, and sometimes they didn't have the energy to do another issue, and they just started something new, and they felt like doing a new thing a very different phenomenon from individuals publishing books. Beyond the language, the community's need for its own press changed too. Here's Ken Goldstein. Well, originally, if you go back to the early days, uh, the papers served three functions. They helped to um, help people get acclimatized to their new country. They helped to bring news of the old country. And they acted also as kind of a bulletin board. They were, in a very primitive way, the Facebook of their day. People got in contact by writing letters to those newspapers. They looked for relatives and and, and so on. They don't need that anymore. That, That function isn't served anymore in the same way. While the more vibrant tradition of Yiddish journals and newspapers dissipated after World War II, there were English and French language Jewish papers that continued to serve the community, They just looked a lot different. The community's needs changed too. The Jewish press became less about maintaining a connection with the old country and more about engaging with Jewish life in North America. There was the Jewish Tribune, which was a more right-wing paper from B'nai B'rith, one of the largest Jewish organizations in Canada. They folded in 2015. There was also Outlook. Outlook grew out of United Jewish People's Order, or UJPO a secular Jewish organization in North America. I should mention that while I'm not a member of UJPO, um, I have a lot of friends who are, uh, so I do some stuff with them from time to time. Outlook was a staunchly left-wing publication. It ran for 52 years and folded in 2016. Canadian Jewish News, or CJN, was launched in 1971. They almost folded in 2013, but after a public outcry, their board of directors reworked a business plan that would keep it afloat, just in a different format. Uh, My name is Yoni Goldstein, and I'm the editor of the Canadian Jewish News. The paper did soldier on, and they made a commitment to, to, you know, try and inject some new life into it, and that included um, updating updating the website, which was in significant need of of an upgrade, uh, redesigning the redesigning the print edition uh, to be more indicative of the paper's direction as a news magazine rather than a newspaper. And then they invited me to come be the editor and try to give it some new, you know, younger blood, 
and be a little bit less afraid of taking on bigger issues in the community. You know, uh, the typical CJN uh, would have, you know, in, in let's say seven or eight years ago, would have had a story, the latest news from Israel, you know, maybe it was political news or, um, I don't know, security issue. And that would probably dominate the front page of the paper. And the reality was that, um, you know, that news got outdated very quickly, right? Because people could read it on the web the day it happened instead of two or three days later when it arrived on their doorstep. Um, so we decided that really the only way to to give readers value for what they were subscribing to was to um, to talk about the issues that are actually affecting their their daily life. And we invested more in doing in, investigative news work. And we turned the paper into a bit more of a magazine style where we're talking more about issues, you know, like, and they can be, they could be things that, you know, Jews have been talking about forever, like anti-Semitism, uh, and they could be much more modern issues like uh, conversion um, or LGBT issues. Uh, but we thought, you know, at least we can try and open up the community to some form of dialogue by doing that as opposed to sort of giving them the news that they either knew already or, you know, could find somewhere else. While the CJN is the last national Jewish publication in Canada, there are still a few small local papers. My name is Bernie Billen, and I'm the publisher and editor of the Jewish Posted News in Winnipeg. Winnipeg's Jewish community is small, only about 12,000 people. The Jewish Post and News was founded in 1987 when the Jewish Post merged with the Western Jewish News. Both papers had been around since 1925. They publish in print bi-weekly and have some online content too. My view is that um, a, a Jewish paper, uh, I would think in most cases, serves the local market first and foremost. And you have to be very attentive to what the interests of your local readers are. Although in Winnipeg's case, Winnipeg is probably unique in North America, that there are more ex-Winnipeg Jews around in the world than there are Jews living in Winnipeg right now. Um, so that uh, we have we have a fair number of readers outside the community who are interested in keeping tabs, but they're interested in seeing what's going on in Winnipeg. And Bernie has a reputation for keeping those tabs. People know that I'm a bit of an S-disturber, and uh, I get a kick out of it. So before we get into Bernie's next story, we need to explain a little bit about Kashrut. To keep kosher is to adhere to Jewish dietary laws. No pork, no shellfish, no mixing meat and milk, and any meat or poultry that you do eat needs to be properly slaughtered and blessed. Kashrut has been in the news a lot lately. Belgium recently banned kosher and halal slaughter, which is causing a huge problem for observant Jews and Muslims living in Belgium. But that's a whole other conversation. For now, let's go to Winnipeg. And you know, we've got problems with uh, kashrut. has also been a big source of, of interest because by far the majority of people, I think everywhere now, do not keep kosher, yet Jewish organizations insist on adherence to kashrut. But we don't have a single kosher butcher shop in Winnipeg. Um, getting kosher meat is extremely difficult because it has to come from Toronto or Montreal. It's far, well, it's very expensive. 
And yet there's this, this insistence that uh, Jewish organizations have to maintain an adherence to kashrut, uh, including our camps, our Jewish seniors' home. And I've said, why do they have, why does everyone have to have kashrut? Why can't you have a kosher and a non-kosher kitchen and all these facilities? And people say, oh, no, we can't, can't possibly do that. So I ask the questions that people have in their minds and then, you know, get slapped for, for asking them. And then I continue to ask them. This story about Winnipeg Jewish organizations adhering so closely to Kashrut is a good way to understand some of the differences between the American and Canadian Jewish communities. I'm Tama Smith. I'm the Director of Community Engagement at Holy Blossom Temple um, and an active volunteer and member of the Toronto Jewish community. So when um, what is now Hebrew Union College, at the time it had a different name, um, had its first uh, ordination of rabbis dinner uh, in Cincinnati at its college. In 1883? The meal that was served was like de facto not kosher like every there was shellfish um you know it was there was sweetbreads which to the best of my knowledge is not from a kosher part of a cow um everything about this meal there was and it was very like high-end cuisine but very purposefully not kosher and it's kind of gone down in history of course reform congregations in the u.s would not do that anymore but i feel like it says a lot about how that the trajectory of the u.s jewish community that here's like this major moment in american jewish history um, and they're eating lobster Tema has written for the CJN, but more frequently writes for Jewish papers in the U.S., like the Jewish Daily Forward. The areas that I've really written a lot on are on race and inclusion and Judaism and understanding um, both um, how race is constructed in Jewish life and also sort of the imperatives of inclusion um, within our Jewish communities. So recognizing that the community itself is quite diverse and is getting more so, and how do we um, work with that, as well as understanding the racial history of Jews in the U.S. and how we talk about, for example, whiteness and are Jews white, that question, or what does it mean to say a Jew of color um, when Jews uh, who are not people of color are also ethnically other from sort of a white Anglo-Saxon whiteness. So these are all issues that have different meanings in American and Canadian contexts, and the CJN does publish stories about issues of race in the Jewish community too. But as the sole national paper, it's not realistic to expect that they could cover the wide breadth of views of the entire Jewish community. Do we represent everybody? No, absolutely not. And I, I'm, I think I'm fine with that. You know, I think within like the rubric of Zionism and where we say, you know, we don't have any, we're not trying to hide that we're a Zionist paper as a position. You know, I think within that we've shown the breadth of what that can mean to people from, well, from as far right as, um, you know, as questioning the, uh, we're questioning the situation in the West Bank and Gaza to as far left as saying, you know, there are major problems with, with Israel as it is now, and it needs to, and it needs to face those criticisms head on. I think you see all that in the paper. Now, are there farther opinions on the right and the left that aren't in the paper? Yeah, but, um, 
you know, I think those fall outside of what we're trying to do. And in other cases, I don't think they're very highly representative of opinions in the Jewish community. One place where conversations on the Jewish radical left are happening in Canada is TRAFE, a podcast produced by Sam Bick and David Zinman in Montreal. Hi, my name is David Zinman, and I'm one of the hosts and producers of the TRAFE podcast. TRAFE is the Yiddish word for any food that's not kosher, any food that breaks Jewish dietary laws, like bacon or a cheeseburger. And that's the approach they take to Jewish issues going beyond what's kosher, exploring what it means to be Jewish in spaces that push the boundaries of the mainstream narrative. Um, I would say it's a very niche podcast or, uh, or radio show because we also broadcast on CKUT once a month, uh, sort of a digest of what we put out that month. But um, we focus on, the way we frame it is we focus on political conversations that are happening in Jewish communities in North America or that we think should be. Um, so we have different people on. A lot of them are from the States. Um, and yeah, we just talk about politics, but uh, we come at it from a radical leftist, anti-colonial perspective, which these days in Jewish media is not a political position that is super represented. You know, we, we're based in uh, Occupy Jojage or Montreal, and I grew up uh, just north of Toronto in Thornhill. And uh, the yeah, the, the kind of Jewish media that we grew up with and surrounds us on a daily basis is not exactly leftist and to the degree that it is is definitely not the kind of leftist that overlaps with our politics and in, in the united states there's a little there's probably a little more sort of progressive left uh coverage with publications like the forward but yeah here at this point the only national jewish newspaper even is the canadian jewish news so we wanted to try to provide something different so trafe exemplifies the kind of ideology that exists far to the left of Canadian Jewish News's mandate. Whereas left for the CJN might mean being critical of the current Israeli administration, Traif is explicitly anti-colonial and therefore anti-Zionist in its approach. But as far as media goes, it seems like it's the only one of its kind in Canada. When Outlook folded in 2016, that was the last Jewish leftist publication in Canada. Carl Rosenberg, then the editor of Outlook, spoke to Sam Bick and David Zinman about Outlook's closure on episode 19 of Trape. Here's a clip from that episode. Uh, on that note, you know, now that Outlook has published its final issue, what are your feelings on the continuation of that struggle? I mean, for me and for many other people, the demise of Outlook, it's very sad. It means, I think, to many people, the loss of not just a voice, but a, a focus for the gathering of voices. You know, a, a focus for a discussion where different voices could be heard. All, all I can do is hope that it will somehow be continued elsewhere. For example, some people have expressed a hope that Outlook will revive in an online form, which would be good to see. I mean, whether anything will come of this, I don't know. But I think there are all sorts of there are different ways that the conversation you know, could continue. This interview was from almost three years ago, April of 2016. And if we're talking about traditional media, it doesn't seem like anything has sprung up to replace it. But according to David, those conversations are happening, just in different places. I think that the types of conversations that Carl was talking about um, are happening. Like, we, we give some space for it on our show, um, and the organizational space for that has sort of been opened up with, with Ujpo and, and IJV. That's United Jewish People's Order and Independent Jewish Voices. Um, but I also see it happening a lot online, like in these online Jewish left Facebook groups so that me and Sam were on a lot of them for the show. 
the level of discourse in those groups sometimes blows me away. And I think that it's really similar to a lot of the discussions that were happening in Outlook and continue to happen in other publications like Jewish Currents, which in a lot of ways was a, a sibling publication to Outlook on the other side of the border. So I do think those conversations are continuing, but maybe not in the same regionally contained way that they were uh, before, because Outlook was a specifically Canadian publication, where I think a lot of these conversations that are happening are less specifically Canadian. I think these groups just give a space for Jews who share um, radical leftist politics or a commitment to opposing colonialism to talk to each other and sort of build analysis, have a space to vent about things have a space to get support for things, um, sometimes similar to the way that in a lot of magazines would be classified ads, people be like, I, you know, I made this thing, does anyone want it? Uh, it's just, yeah, it creates a network of people to get to know each other, to talk together and often disagree. You know, I, there definitely, there's a level of discourse that compared to what exists in the mainstream Jewish press is fantastic, but to be fair, it fluctuates quite wildly. So I don't want to give a blanket recommendation to all these uh, online groups, but there's there's a lot there that I do enjoy. That kind of discourse sounds a lot like what Rebecca was talking about in the Yiddish journal scene. That said, the framework of social media as a platform for discourse, as opposed to more traditional media, leads to a whole different kind of problem. Here's Ken Goldstein talking about the complications of a fragmented media landscape. Uh, this is an issue that I have been grappling with. Uh, I guess I first wrote about it in 1991, and it's a very great concern, and, and I believe it is the fundamental issue of media and society for at least the next generation. When we had very few media, and I'm talking about broad spectrum media, newspapers, radio, television, we all tended to see at least some of the same things. And in the case of newspapers in particular, if you saw something in the newspaper and you said, well, wait a minute, I know something about that topic. I don't think they've got this right. At the same time as you were thinking, I don't think they've got this right, you also knew that virtually every one of your neighbors and virtually everyone else in the city had seen the same item. They might, or at least could have seen the same item. They might have read it, they might not have read it. Therefore, there was a, uh, an impetus to do something about it if you thought it was wrong. And from that, we got shared experience. Shared experience doesn't mean we all have to agree on everything, but it means we at least hopefully start from some basic set of facts or from some similar starting point. Today, when the uh, circulation of the paid circulation of daily newspapers in Canada is less than 15% of the households, which is a sad thing to have to say, but that's the fact. Today, when uh, the viewing and listening is fragmented into thinner and thinner slices, we have no idea what somebody four doors away from us is reading on the internet and whether it's true or false or good or bad and so we don't have the same kind of discussion mm -hmm. around those issues and we don't even have the same starting point for the discussion around those issues and the question i posed uh, on more than one occasion and i still pose is how does a modern democracy function when we all have less in common. 
How does a modern democracy function when we all have less in common? So at this point, we've gone from the much smaller question of the state of Jewish media to the state of modern democracy pretty quickly. And maybe that's because, as far as media goes, the issues in the Jewish communities aren't so different from other ethnic groups. And in Canada, for reasons we'll talk about later, that also has to do with the way that ethnic groups function in a multicultural framework. But let's rein this question in. What does this mean for the Jews? At the heart of what we've been talking about is the question of whether Jewish issues need to be discussed in explicitly Jewish spaces, or if they can exist in the mainstream. Let's look at a recent CBC story to unpack this a bit more. On January 4th, Evan Dyer wrote a story for the CBC about JNF, the Jewish National Fund, facing an audit after the CRA received complaints that it was using charitable donations to build infrastructure for the IDF, which is Israel's military. This would violate Canada's tax laws. Canadian charities can't give tax-deductible donations to other countries' militaries. On January 11th, the CJN, Canadian Jewish News, published a story that followed up on the CBC story. Here's Yoni Goldstein. You know, if that had been a story that had come to us and we'd been able to, um, and we'd be been able to flesh out the reporting, I don't think that's a story we wouldn't have published. You know, we published a story in the last year for sure about uh, the Jewish National Fund's uh, Stephen Harper bird sanctuary that they've been building in Israel that was um, uh, seemed to be significantly behind schedule. And we had a reporter out there sort of scoping out the site. And, you know, and the piece was highly critical of, of JNF and what they had promised and what they had actually delivered uh, here in Canada and in Israel. So it's not the kind of story that we wouldn't have, that we wouldn't have um, pursued. I think, you know, in publishing a response, not, and I wouldn't say it was a response, but, you know, a response to the piece that the CBC did, um, I think, you know, one of the benefits we have is that, unfortunately, in the CBC piece, there was virtually no comment from Jew, from the Jewish National Fund. Uh, I, I can't say why that was, but in our piece, there's significant comment mm -hmm. from them. So <clears throat> I think in terms of rounding out the entire story of what's going on here, it's helpful because we were able to we were able to bring uh, to bring an angle to the story that the CBC wasn't able to get for one reason or another, um, and I think it was complementary in that sense. When you take the two stories together, you get a you get a fuller picture of what's happening. I don't think I don't think you you would read the piece, and I know this from complaints from from readers over the last couple of days. I don't think anybody would read that piece as being conciliatory to to the Jewish National Fund, but. Uh, at least in this story, we were in a unique position to sort of uh, broaden the story in a way that hadn't been done before. It's important to keep in mind that one writer's perspective on this particular issue, the JNF's Harper Bird Sanctuary Project, is just one perspective within the Jewish community. But I wonder how this issue would be examined in a more left-wing paper or a more right-wing paper. As the last national Jewish newspaper in Canada, the CJN does have good access to most of the Jewish organizations here, but Yoni doesn't see being the last one standing as necessarily a good thing. I wish it was more robust. You know, when I started, when I started at the CJN five years ago, there was still the Jewish Tribune, which was a um, a right wing paper put out by Bnei B'rith weekly across the country. There was still Outlook Magazine, which is a left wing magazine produced out of, I believe, Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Uh, and there were, I believe, even a number of more local Jewish newspapers. And virtually, virtually all of those are gone now. 
uh, and I, I think that's a real I think that's a real tragedy because you know I've I've gained a lot just from reading Jewish media and consuming it and I think you know the, when there's less of it there there's less interesting stuff to read. I can't help but imagine the CJN as a lone tumbleweed rolling across an otherwise barren landscape. Nothing to the right, nothing to the left. But that's not really what the Jewish community looks like. Not now, and certainly not 100 years ago. Here's Rebecca Margolis. The the Yiddish-speaking community was very, very, very... um, diverse in, first of all, um, politically, where they stood. So were you, were you, a, were you leftist? Were you some variation of um, Zionist? Um, did you believe the Jewish people should have a homeland? And if so, where should it be? Um, did you believe that the working class um, should determine its own fate? And was that an important set of values? And there were all kinds of variations of, of those ideologies. And then on the other side, there was the more religiously traditional community that also produced its own writers. Um, There was a lot of um, exchange and sometimes overlap between these different ideological views because the community was relatively small. And sometimes even within a family, you had um, fairly traditional Jewish parents, and then you had one child who was a communist and one child who was a Zionist and one child who um, was a combination of socialism and Zionism and they would sit around the dinner table and fight about ideology. Mm-hmm. And that was fairly typical during that pre-Second World War period. As someone who has had many, many dinners with different parts of my large Jewish family, I can attest to the fact that those fights around the dinner table are very much still a part of our culture. They're just not as well represented in a more public discourse, at least in Canada. In the United States, you've got publications like Tablet, Jewish Daily Forward, Jewish Currents, Hey Alma, Lilith, and more local papers. Here's David Zinman. Well, there's just so much more going on. <laughs> I, feel, I feel sort of guilty sometimes because we do this show and me and Sam come to the studio and we just turn on the computer and we turn on uh, Skype and we talk to someone in, mostly in New York City uh, about what's going on there. And increasingly as the show has gone on there's a lot less to talk about here um we, we have this workshop that we do about deconstructing how people in jewish communities understand anti-semitism and we've done this workshop in tons of different cities we've gone as far as beijing to do it wow. and it's only this weekend that we're actually going to be doing it in montreal for the first time uh it, as as the show's gone on we've increasingly become uh i close to a lot of people on the other side of the border, but I think part of a discussion that's mostly happening there and part of a, a, a milieu that does, isn't as strong here. But Yoni Goldstein cautions against being too optimistic. I would say that, um, you know, and I go to I go to like the annual conference of the American Jewish Press Association. So, you know, I've met a, I've met a number of the people who run run these run the major and even some of the minor American Jewish media and it's you know it's a struggle for them the same way that it is for us like it's I don't want there there shouldn't be an impression out there that it's like some golden age of Jewish journalism in the states because they're they're dealing with all the same market pressures that everybody else is and that also means that um, on more than uh, small occasions they descend into clickbaity stuff and publish uh, opinions that they probably would have been 
better off not doing so. So it's not like the situation is perfect there. At this point, I think we need to take a step back and really hammer out the differences between the Canadian and American Jewish communities. Here's Tema Smith. The American community, um, like, dwarves the Canadian community. Um, the Canadian the Canadian community comparatively is tiny. Um, the entirety of the Canadian Jewish community is smaller than the New York Jewish community alone. Um, and the American community itself um, is quite diverse, the U.S. being so large and having so many cities compared to Canada, where really it's a much more sort of condensed community to our major cities. So Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, and of course, with smaller communities in Ottawa, Hamilton, Winnipeg. Um, so just the volume of the resources that you have available in the U.S. and different congregations, different community organizations, everything like that is just so different. Um, and the other is that we just have a very different way of being as a Canadian society than the U.S. Um, so Canada, of course, um, has enshrined multiculturalism, uh, multiculturalism as policy, has always sort of encourage the retention of ethnic identities and community identities, um, which has enabled a very different trajectory to a Jewish community, whereas the U.S. is so much more based in assimilation um, and this idea of a melting pot. Um, and sort of, I think, semi-related to that is that our Jewish communities here tend to be much more traditional in orientation, um, whereas in the U.S., um, you know, the reform movement is the dominant movement. Canada, it's conservative. Um, and uh, the conservative movement in the U.S. is much more uh, liberal than the Canadian conservative movement. So everything is a little bit more um, Americanized in many ways, whereas Canada's community has really, I think, retained a little bit more of that traditional outlook, even within, for example, its reform and liberal communities. That enshrined multicultural policy in Canada came up in a lot of our conversations. Here's Rebecca Margolis. As soon as you start producing culture in English, it becomes something that is potentially mainstream. And it winds up feeding in perfectly with ideologies or politics of multiculturalism that start appearing in the 1970s, um, where suddenly there's an emphasis on people maintaining their, at least not necessarily their heritage language, but maintaining their heritage culture. And there are supports for projects to translate Yiddish into English and to create anthologies. Um, and that changes the way that people perceive the culture and um, that the culture becomes something that can be brought into the mainstream, but it becomes something that's part of Canadian identity. Mm -hmm. So part of being Canadian is that you come from a particular immigrant heritage, but you also engage with Canadian life. And Canadian Jews as a group, and particularly writers and cultural figures, uh, largely embrace that ideology and they participate in it and, and create projects where they can basically bring the richness of Yiddish culture to the Canadian mainstream and share that. There are books and, and other projects where there's a, a note you know, supported by Multiculturalism Canada or a grant of Multiculturalism Canada. Um, there are huge efforts to, to translate Yiddish literary works into other languages, also in many cases supported by Multiculturalism Canada. And so that ideology becomes a part of the ideological history of what Yiddish is in Canada. In terms of people bringing a kind of Jewishness into the mainstream, there are names you would definitely recognize. A.M. Klein, Mordecai Richler, Leonard Cohen. 
Schwartz's Deli in Montreal, which is now owned by the ultimate Canadian diva, Celine Dion. But I can't help but get stuck on this concept of multiculturalism in the Jewish context. For all this talk about Canada being a welcoming and diverse country, there's no ignoring the fact that everything shuts down completely over Christmas. You don't see the country that quiet during Rosh Hashanah or Ramadan, or much of anything outside of these communities beyond a message from the Prime Minister. Not to mention the fact that looking at multiculturalism from the perspective of an immigrant experience more or less excludes Indigenous voices, though there have been a lot of improvements in the inclusion and centering of Indigenous stories in Canada. But to bring it back to the issue of Jewish media specifically, looking at funding grants also raises the question of how these kinds of publications survive in today's already rocky media landscape. And again, those models look different in the U.S. Here's Tema Smith. Um, and, you know, I look at a number of the sources that are out there and how they actually have really successful fundraising arms, which is so different. So, like, The Forward has a foundation. Tablet is funded through foundations. Um, and that they've actually managed to incorporate, like, Jewish media into what it means to be a, a Jewish philanthropist in the United States is really interesting and cool and a really great model for actually keeping this phenomenal um, spectrum going. In doing all this research about the history of Jewish media and what exists today and different models, there doesn't seem to be an easy answer for a way forward. And I didn't really expect there would be. Jewish discourse thrives on ambiguity and disagreement. What I wonder is how our generation will work to define its relationship to Jewish identity and culture. Here's David Zinman. I do think that groups like Independent Jewish Voices, uh, especially around Palestine, have done really great work for now over a decade on carving out uh, in, in a lot of different ways uh, alternatives to the way that Jewishness is defined by the dominant Jewish organizations here and the way that you know places like the Winchevsky Center and, and, and others have carved out space for people to explore different cultural traditions of, of Jewishness than defined by Zionism. So I, I do, I, yeah, I do agree that there isn't as much going on here as in the United States, but I don't think that it's a complete void. Like there are a lot of great people doing a lot of great things. Here's Rebecca Margolis. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of old fashioned in that I actually think that having a, a, a physical product of a conversation like that is very valuable. Um, so the idea of, of producing, even if it's a PDF document, some kind mm -hmm. of a, a project that people work on collaboratively to answer a question, whether that question is, what are new literary structures that we're creating or new ideas? I think that's an extremely valuable thing. Um, and so in, in, in my mind, if there was a, a project to create some kind of collaborative collection of voices that appeared in a form that people could access, and then because I'm also one of the things that I do is sort of take a historical perspective. Um, I like the idea of leaving some kind of a paper trail of mm -hmm. conversations that were had. And I think that's, that's more and more complicated now that people tend to not leave paper trails. People don't write letters. People don't leave these physical artifacts of conversations that they've had. So it becomes hard to know what people were talking about five years ago or 10 years ago that we might build on now. Tema Smith? I think we're in like a really exciting and pivotal moment in terms of both like what the Jewish community is and what it does and also the sources that we use for it. And this is something that like I find endlessly exciting is how the Jewish community has transformed itself and grown and changed over its history. 
always. Um, and I think, you know, for me, one of the really exciting things to think about is how these new voices and different voices are fueling that change and reacting to that change. And, you know, we've seen so many changes, for example, in the CJN and the format of the CJN. And I think we will continue to see that. Um, and just that sort of recognition and excitement about being an adoptive community is something that's really important to me. Um, and I think that it's um, interesting and different and not something that every um, that every community has built into it. And Johnny Goldstein. You know, we put out 40, approximately 40 pages uh, of print every week nationally and another 30 to 40 in Montreal. And, you know, and there are stories that, and, we, and our website, and there are stories that we still don't get to. Right. And, uh, and we're never going to be able to get to all of them. So, you know, I, I think there is space for some, for something else to come along, uh, certainly in a web environment. And there are people doing it on, on a kind of a very small basis, but I haven't seen anybody really, you know, like leap at the opportunity to be, I don't know, the alternative or the alternative Jewish news in Canada. At least in the last five years, I, I you know, I'm, I would be, I, I would be interested to see somebody stand up and do that. And that's our show. Pull quotes is produced by Mikhail Stein and by me, Lydia Abraha. Thanks to Hannah Ziegler for additional research and producing this week. Thank you so much to all of our guests this week. Bernie Bellin, Ken Goldstein, Yoni Goldstein, Rebecca Margolis, Tama Smith, and David Zinman. Thank you to David Zinman and Sam Bick from TRAFE for letting us use a clip from episode 19 of the TRAFE podcast. Many of these guests not only let us interview them, but also listen to me try to sort through my own feelings about Jewish identity, and I am endlessly grateful for their time and patience. For more information on our guests this week, we've got links to their work in the show notes. Thanks to Angela Glover and Lindsay Hanna for technical help. Our executive producer is Sonia Fata. If you learned something today, please help us spread the word by sharing our show on social media and leaving us a rating on iTunes. You can find me on Twitter at Liddy Abraha. And me at Michal Stein too. You can also visit rrj.ca for new stories every week. We'll see you next week on Pull Quotes. Pull Quotes.